Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Jonathan tells me to just relax, to make myself at home. There's coffee and a bunch of cookies from his 7-Eleven. He said no one is coming to his store anytime soon, so I can have them for free. I ask what he'll do for money while he's here, how he's going to survive. To be completely honest with you, I'm spending my mornings walking around, filling my pockets with anything I can find in people's abandoned homes. Most houses still have electricity, so I'm raiding fridges and freezers. Before you leave here, you should do the same. I don't want to pry, but seems like you got a long way ahead of you and very little means to take care of yourself. Jonathan is sitting across from me in his living room. A small house right next to the 7-Eleven. A simple house. There's some pictures on the walls, a cabinet, two old chairs in front of where the TV used to be. And there's a small dining table with a dusty lamp hanging over it. All the green slime has been scraped away. It almost seems like we're in a normal house, in a normal street. While he's telling me about finding food throughout the deserted town of Protus, I wonder if it's actually his house we're sitting in, or just the one closest to the store. As far as I can tell, he isn't in any of the pictures. Well, I'm in a bit of trouble. I've got an enormous debt, and I mean enormous. The pit I've dug for myself, I'm surprised I haven't fallen through to the other side of the planet. (laughs) My mom used to tell me, Jonathan, you were born with luck sewn directly into your soul. She just kept saying that to me, in spite of everything falling apart, in spite of my dad dying and her not being able to hold a job. I think it was her way of instilling some kind of confidence in me. I don't know. Anyway, I believed her. If your parents tell you things again and again while you're young, they become part of you. 
And it seems a blessing, right? Optimism and confidence. But it made me blind. I see that now. I got the opportunity to buy a whole block of houses, including the 7-Eleven in this town, Protus. I had never heard of it, but the price was really good, and all the houses were rented out. Too good to be true, people would say. But I thought to myself, I'm just a lucky guy. Luck is part of my constitution. That's what my mom said, so I bought the whole thing. I did all the chores for the residents and worked the 7-Eleven. I did everything, and I became a part of this town. But then the festival came and took everything I had. Everybody left. A lot of them tried, you know, to stay. But that green stuff finds its way into the piping of your house, clogging everything up. Doors won't open or close anymore. You can't use the roads. Kids can't play in the park, can't ride their bikes. Pets get stuck on roofs, died there, starved. There's green slime everywhere, and cleaning it up is very hard work. It's possible, but it takes a lot of time. So, everybody leaves, and Protus turns into a ghost town. Gone are my earnings, the money I need to pay off the loan, so I go to the people that sold me the plot. And it turns out, it's the same people that lent me the money to be able to afford the deal in the first place. It's like a circle. I'm part of a snake eating its own tail. And that snake is a company run by this man they call the gardener. He's the bigger winner of this story. He gets to confiscate the premises, and I owe him a huge debt. He gets money and the buildings. He gets everything. Men like the gardener don't depend on luck. They go out into the world, weapons out, and teeth sharpened, kill or be killed and they get their way. Luck has nothing to do with anything. They know that. I ask what the green slime is, where it came from, but he doesn't know. Only that it has something to do with the festival. I ask how he's planning on settling his debt. <laughs> well, there's two steps to my plan. The gardener's men are coming, that's for sure. So first, I'm going to build a wall of green slime around the town. I've been piling that stuff up in the garbage trucks. I want to block the main roads to make it harder for the debt collectors to follow me once I leave. The second step is to give myself a new identity. I mean, the festival leaves chaos and destruction in its wake. So from the dissipating fog of war, I could rise a whole new man with a whole new name, a whole new story. Jonathan will disappear forever in just a couple of days. I'm thinking of new names in the meantime. What do you think of Constantine? That sounds like a successful man, right? Or is it too much? Anyway, while preparing for my big escape, I keep an eye on everyone trying to get into Protus, making sure they aren't here to kill me, making sure they aren't sent by the gardener like the last guys were. Jonathan takes a long look at me and frowns. I just sit there, not sure what he expects from me. He puts his glass of water down and leans forward in his chair. Are you here to kill me, Robert? If that is, in fact, your name. I tell him no. But my voice sounds like a thin, vibrating sheet of glass, on the verge of shattering. Do you work with the gardener? I tell him no again. 
and the lie leaves a burning shame on my cheeks, as if the mark I carry lights up to signal the truth. Jonathan keeps looking at me while we sit in silence for what feels like a very long time. Then, all of a sudden, he gets up and smiles at me. He says he has some slime to clean and a main road to check. He says he'll be back and we can continue work on my car together. There's a body. I mean, dead bodies. The police. Two cops. There's two dead cops here. They're lying face down on the bed. The old mattress is soaking in the blood from their guts and it's... I never meant to find them. I was just going upstairs to look for the bathroom and there was this smell. I mean, I opened the door and there they were. Here they are. The dead bodies face down on the bed. Jonathan told me to make myself at home. That's literally what he said right before he walked out. Why would he say that if there's dead cops in the bedroom on the second floor? He could have made up any excuse to keep me downstairs. He could have had coffee with me in any other house. Unless he didn't know. No, of course he did. He's the only person living here. Or maybe he wanted me to find them. He wanted me to know what he's capable of. He wanted me to know that I'm trapped in an empty town with a cop killer. It's the two cops who arrested me. I squatted down next to the bed to be able to see part of their faces. It's those demon snake-like cops that locked me up. They went looking for Jonathan, but he shot them with a shotgun. The double barrel is standing right here against the flower wallpaper. They came to settle the debt and he killed them. And now I'm the one who came into town looking for him. Maybe I should take the gun. I could also just tell him the truth. We're both caught up in the same trap, kind of. But if he doesn't believe me, if he thinks I'll give him up to the gardener, maybe I'll end up next to these guys, face down on the mattress, bleeding out. Hi, I'm Sleeper, and I apologize for interrupting the show. Leaving Corvat is a one-man production that can use all the help it can get. If you head over to leavingcorvat.com, you'll find lots of cool Corvat-related stuff you can get in return for supporting the show. Thanks. And now back to the story. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.
So, there's no circling it anymore. Let's get down to it. Here's how it happened. I was in the middle of my shift, and I was spacing out. I played Temple of Sleep all night, so I was almost completely detached from the physical world around me. My lizard brain had taken over the simple task of flipping the burgers, and the rest of me was sinking into itself, dreaming while awake. Then Mr. Crow turns me around, hard. He's frustrated, says he's been standing here calling my name, asks me if I've gone deaf. He says I should take a break. He'll take over for a couple of minutes. There's someone that wants to talk to me. Now, to be clear, no one ever gets an extra break, ever. Let alone someone getting a break and Mr. Crow taking over. Rodrigo is standing next to me with a burger in his hand, frozen, staring at the boss, watching Mr. Crow take over the sleeper station. The crow says I should go out back. Someone wants to talk to me. So I do as I'm told. I walk outside and there's a man waiting for me. It's Kim's dad. The thing is, Kim's dad is the local mechanic, so everyone in town knows him. Everyone in town is his friend because everybody needs to get their car fixed every now and then. He's exactly what you would imagine if you picture someone owning the one auto repair shop. Big black mustache grown out of laziness, grease and oil stains on his white shirt, big belly, but also big strong arms, red nose, bloodshot eyes, this man is not taking care of himself, but his constitution is so strong, he can still take care of anyone who gets in his way. He tries to start out friendly and talks to me about Kim. He says I was her friend. She mentioned you, he says. You two talked a lot, right? I'm not sure what to say, so I start muttering something. We're standing in between the rumbling AC units in the scorching sun. The trash cans are right next to us, and it smells like rotten flesh. I can't focus, I'm so tired. I just want to get back to my station. I want to get back to the beeps. Kim's dad starts getting frustrated. He tells me Kim stole a car from his shop. I thought she stole his car, but apparently she just took a random key from the locked box and drove off. She stole a car from a customer. A very important customer, he says. He calls his daughter a criminal, and he says that I'm complicit if I don't tell him anything I know. He says she emptied the safe, all of his earnings, gone. Basically, I was already panicking before he even started threatening me. I'm completely out of it, sleep deprived, everything deprived. And then he takes two steps in my direction and says, Here's what's gonna happen. You tell me what you know, or I make your life hell. I will never work on your dad's car again. I call the cops on you, I'll tell your boss you're a junkie. It'll be like you're back in high school, and I'm there every day beating you up for lunch money. So, I tell him. I could act like it happened quickly, or that I fought first. I could say that it was like watching myself from across the street doing it like I had no control over any of this. But none of that is true. I thought to myself, I want this to end. 
I wanted to get back to work. So I made a conscious decision to tell him everything I knew. I told him she was headed to Naraka. And without hesitating a second, he nodded and walked away. He started his pursuit. Because from here, there's only one route you take to go west. So he knew where to find her. I walked back into the restaurant, took over from Mr. Crow, and flipped the burgers for 10 hours. Then I went home and played TOS on my Game Boy until I passed out on the couch. By the time I woke up, the shame and self-hate was spreading fast. It was like a progressive disease that I'd infected myself with. It was like a cloud of poisonous gas or a green slime. It made my joints stick together. It made my thoughts chaotic. It filled my stomach and kept me from eating. It kept me. So, let's think about this. Jonathan killed them, the demon police officers. He had no choice but to kill them. This guy had to defend himself. He got screwed over. They tried to back him into a corner and he shot them. The gardener never heard back from his demon underlings and sent me out here because I'm a lot more friendly looking. If I call the number and give this guy up, they'll know he killed the cops and the gardener will probably send an army of demons over to this town. Jonathan's a good guy. Never had any bad intentions. I'm not gonna do him dirty like that. Never again. I'm trying to find him, Jonathan, to talk to him about everything. I want to make a plan together so we can both untangle ourselves from the gardener's web. But it's harder than I thought to find him, since he could be anywhere in town. Literally, I walked up and down the main road now. He wasn't there, and there's no one to ask. The white vans are still there, by the way. Still stuck. But the mold guys disappeared. Maybe they went somewhere to... What the... Is that... It's the car. It's Mr. Crow's car. The one I stole to get out of Corvat. I'm sitting on the sidewalk right now, hiding behind it. The car is unlocked. My backpack is on the back seat. I'm gonna grab it. Got my wallet. Got my ID. My Game Boy with Temple of Sleep. Got my camera. Got my sketching pens. I can draw my sketchbook again. On my phone. It's dead. But at least I've got all my stuff back. That's amazing. This is amazing. But it's also very much not amazing. Because this means Mr. Crow is also close. Way too close. I hear something. There's someone in the empty shop across the street from Mr. Crow's car. I'm gonna see if I can get closer. I can see the crow. He's standing in the empty shop. His back is turned to me. But there's also someone else, a man. He seems to... Is that... Is that Jonathan? Listen, mister, it's very simple. The man you were looking for is in town. He's in my house. 
you said you wanted to find him, right? On the phone, you talked about some kind of get your employee back to work after emotional meltdown bonus, some kind of money you would get from BBU after you get him to return to work. Well, he's here, and I'll help you catch him for half of whatever you're getting. Cash. You drive a hard bargain, sir. But I understand betrayal can't come cheap. Listen, the only reason I'm doing this is for the money. So take it or leave it. You have yourself a deal. <sighs> All right, let's go catch ourselves a stray burger flipper. There's something weird going on with influencers right now. I'm a little freaked out. They just get everything they want. Everything's a little too perfect. Their smiles are a little too straight. They're using filters I can't find anywhere. I know what I'm about to say might sound a little unhinged, but I think it might be witchcraft. At least, that's what Jenna Clayton thought right before she went missing. We're excited to introduce a new show from Realm, If I Go Missing, The Witches Did It, starring Oscar-nominated actress Gabourey Sidibe. When a black writer goes missing, a white podcast host with a savior complex takes up the cause of finding her and collides with a coven of influencers she suspects are responsible. This show is a little bit of the craft meets Mean Girls meets Get Out. Learn more about If I Go Missing, The Witches Did It at realm.fm and be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.